A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. The parable of the rich fool. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. He then told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Once I knew a teenager in rural Pennsylvania. He had neighbors by the name of Mr. and Mrs. Bowersocks. They had two dogs, chihuahuas, one named Pinky and the other Blinky. They loved those dogs like the children they never had. In fact, each night for each dog, they would prepare them a fresh hamburger. And on occasion, when the teenager would go and have dinner with the Bowersocks, if he got served his hamburger before the Pinky and Blinky got served theirs, they would grab a hold of his pant legs and try to pull him away from the table. Mr. Bowersocks has recently retired from running a hardware store in the next town over. And evidently, his view of retirement was freedom from all physical labor. So he offered the teen a job of cutting his lawn. The teen immediately accepted, not only for the $5 salary, but even more, being a hardware man, Mr. Bowersocks had the latest in yard manicuring technology, a self-propelled push mower. Well, they became close over the years. He, the teen never quite reached the status of a chihuahua, but he became like a surrogate grandson. And uh, one time after cutting the grass, they had lemonade on the back porch. And Mr. Bowersocks, using questionable judgment, told the teen, when Mr. and Mrs. Bowersocks, when we pass away, we're going to put you in our will and you're going to share in the inheritance. Well, through an adolescent's eyes, the Bowersocks estate was quite substantial. And from that point on, the relationship became propelled by love and money. Shortly before the teen left home for college, Mr. Bowersocks passed. The boy was sad, but he also couldn't help but think the money was closer. He would call in from college, talk to his mom, uh, ask with mixed motives, well, how's Mrs. B doing? And Mrs. Bowersocks, as is uh, the case with many of the seniors that we know, she began to live long and thus outlive her money. And when she passed, there was barely enough in the estate to bury her body. 
boy was in his 30s when he heard that Mrs. B passed. He indeed got a letter, was named in the estate, but the letter said that there was no money left for inheritance. The grown man wasn't sure which made him saddest, her death or her poverty. The color of money has many shades. In its best and brightest hues, money paints the world with freedom and wholeness. Money can push back the edges of poverty. Money can put food in hungry bellies. Money can provide education and money can cure diseases. Money can make pathways for the gospel of Jesus to go throughout the world. But in its worst and darkest shades, money shrinks the human heart to care for only what it does not have. How much virtue has been lost in the pursuit of money? How much anxiety gained? How cold, how small can money make the human heart? Just ask the teenage boy from rural Pennsylvania who stands before you now. The color of money is green. Greed. Jesus spoke more about greed than he did any other sin. One Bible scholar has connected the amount of words to topics and estimated that every third word Jesus said was connected to greed. He spoke about greed as a sin. He spoke about money as a discipleship tool. Arguably, the primary way to know how you're doing as a disciple of Jesus, like a full-length mirror in which you can look and see how your commitment is, as well as a sharpening tool to fully form followers of Jesus. You will not be a fully formed follower of Jesus until you focus on finances. It's that Important, And so as we talk about greed as one of the deadly sins, we go to one of the classic texts. Luke chapter 12, as Jan read for us. First, we're going to just walk through this story, point some things out. Second, we're going to sit in the story and really try to understand the deadliness of greed. And then last, we're going to see in the text that Jesus gives us two antidotes, two helps uh, with this wrestle uh, against greed. Here's the story. The setting, you can read it there. You've heard it. It was Jesus teaching in Luke 12 about the cost of being a follower. And uh, then someone seems to almost interrupt him with a question. Not really a question, more of a demand. Now, two things were common here. The first thing is that this family is having a dispute with finances. Have you ever in your family had a dispute over finances? You're probably married to one. If you're married, it's very common for families to have disputes over finances. The other thing that's common was for a, a Jewish audience, for a Jew to approach a rabbi, a teacher, someone who knew the Mosaic law so that Mosaic law could be applied to this dispute. In this case, we think it's a younger brother who's really annoyed with his older brother because his older brother is in charge of the estate and probably wants to keep it all together. But the younger brother wants his share and wants to divide it. And Jesus uh, is approached by the younger man who is asking Jesus, rule against my older brother, let me get on with my life. What's interesting is Jesus blows him off. At least in this point, 
There are much bigger issues to be concerned about than settling a family dispute. In fact, someone greater than Moses is here. And Jesus says, I'm going to seize this moment and teach my followers something about money. That's the setting. Here's the big idea. Seizes the moment, wants us to know this. In fact, I've asked Janelle to keep this as the default slide so that you can read it again and again and leave with this verse today memorized so that you will have this big idea resonating in your mind throughout the rest of this week. Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Jesus defines the word. The particular word he uses is a compound Greek word, pleon, which means more, and uh, echo, which means have. What's the definition of greed? Have more. Have more. More, more, more. That's how I like it. That's how I like it. More, more, more. Oh, come on. <laughs> Sing it. Uh, that's greed. And it, greed is the inversion of Jesus' statement, right? Greed is life does consist in an abundance of possessions. When the ancients, we've, we've talked week after week that this series on the seven deadly sins was first preached in the third century. And we're just preaching it again for our generation. But when they preached it, probably in Latin, the word was aveo, which means crave. Greed is to crave material possessions. For a person who is greedy, there's only one four-letter word. Enough. Enough. There's the definition. Now, with that big idea, Jesus, the master teacher, is going to tell a story to illustrate, have more in action. Let's take a look. Verse 16, the beginning of the story. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Interesting word, abundant harvest. Euphoria. Euphoria. Hardworking man. Actually, we're going to call this man Rich Farmer. That's his name, Rich Farmer. Rich Farmer is a hardworking individual, as farmers are. Uh, but they still are very dependent on you know, things outside of their control if they're going to make it. And sure enough, Rich Farmer has a euphoria. God's kindness literally rains down on him. And the rain is right, and the sun is right, and the soil is right, and the seeds are good, and everything comes together. And man, he gets a drop of kindness from heaven into his life and the suspense of the story is what is he a jewish farmer going to do because in the mosaic law what was clear is that israel was called to reflect the father's heart to the world and the father's heart was pray for daily bread you pray for your needs you pray for enough and then you give the rest away well what's rich farmer going to do let's see we get a first indication that something might be going wrong with the possessive pronouns. In fact, I think to sit in this a little bit to help us feel the thinking going bad here, uh, I'm going to read the text, and everything that's in black, you, sh you punch out. You shout out, okay? Let's try this. I don't want to put any pressure on you, but the other two services has done this spectacularly. He th rich farmer thought to himself, what shall do? Have no place to store then crops sorry i screwed it up then he said 
This is what do will tear down barns and build bigger ones, and there will store surplus grain. And say to self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Well done. You get the gist, though. He got the goods from heaven, but they're turned inward immediately. I, my. He believed that the possessions were for him. But you also get a sense of where this is going to go from his plan, right? Let's call it the IMAX barn expansion plan. Slogan, bigger barns for a better life. Key objectives. Number one, take it easy. Number two, eat. Number three, drink. Number four, be merry. Wow. Possessive pronouns turn inward. The plan is for him to keep everything for his personal consumption and comforts. Well, as with every plan, right, every plan needs to be submitted, especially if you're going to build something, to the building inspector. And let's, uh, the building inspector too has a name. Let's call him uh, God. The plans are submitted to God. God responds with two things. First, he calls the rich farmer a name. Fool. And then he calls him out for a glaring omission fool. Evidently, a fool is someone who thinks that the things they have are theirs, who thinks they were given for their personal use and consumption on themselves, and they think they get to keep them. That's a fool. The glaring omission in the plan is that, well, as Jesus said, tonight your life will be demanded from you. Now, I don't know how often we think about this, but evidently we are on recall. <laughs> At any moment, we can be recalled. He left that out of his plan. And so he got all this stuff, built the bigger barns, had a great life, but then he died. End of the story. That's the story. Let's sit in the story for a minute and see the deadliness of greed. Greed is a vision problem, primarily. In fact, in Matthew 6, another classic passage when Jesus teaches on greed, he said that if you're a generous person, you have good eyesight. What he means is you see the world in its reality, where things really come from, where things should really go. You have perfect eyesight. If you're not a generous person, then you walk through stumbling because you're bumping up against reality all the time. You have bad eyesight. Greed is always a vision problem. So, in this case, in this story, the rich farmer, rich, uh, he's, he has, first of all, he's nearsighted. He forgot that, oh yeah, I'm going to die. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that's a reality. Probably the truest thing I could say to you this morning, right? You're going to die. That has to factor into your financial planning. Haddon Robinson, the late Haddon Robinson, he died last week. Huge loss for the kingdom. Nick and I, many of us probably in this room, had sat under Haddon Robinson, taught us how to preach. 
Haddon, uh, when he preached it once at my church at New England, he actually preached this text. And he told this great story and said it's a story that's repeated a hundred times in literature. It's the story of a man who's reading along in a newspaper and he notices the date on the newspaper is six months in advance. And he, he thinks, wow. He looks around and he sees, oh man, the Yankees are in first place. The Rockies are in first place. All this is going on. I could make some bets and make some real money here. And then he turns a few pages and he just looks at the stock market. Oh man, some of these stocks I better ditch. Some of those I better buy. He's delighted. What else is going to happen in six months? Turns a few more pages, looks to the obituaries. There's his picture and his story. And the point of the story? The knowledge of his death changed the views about his wealth. That is the point of the story. When we know we're going to die, when we know we're going to live, if you believe in God and if you believe in eternity somewhere else that operates under a whole different value and currency structure, that really has to impact how you use your finances now or else you're being nearsighted. We sometimes think with money that it is the, the thing that can give us status. If we just have enough money, we can have the right gadgets, we can wear the right clothes, we can eat at the right places, we can have the right home, we can drive the right car, we can get the right education. Money can give us status. When that's a nearsighted view, when the reality is there's only one opinion of us that counts, and that's God's. Sometimes money, we think, can give us security. We think if we just have enough money in the bank, enough in retirement, enough, if we just have enough, then nothing can touch us. We're secure. Money cannot be God to you. It cannot be God to you. You will be recalled one day. That has to influence the way we use money. Leo Toy Story, arguably his most famous short story, was entitled, How Much Land Does a Man Need? And in the story, the man is given this challenge that he can uh, run uh, at sunrise as far as he can run, but the deal is, on the same day, he has to be back to the starting board at sunset. So however much he can run out and back is the land that he can have. So he takes off, he runs as far as he can, judges it right, gets back to the starting point just at sunset, collapses, and dies. How much land does a man need? Six feet. Greed has the power to make us nearsighted. Greed also has the power to make us farsighted. Farsighted are people who can't see up close, can't see, you know, right around them. Isn't it interesting that whenever Jesus teaches on greed, he always has to start by saying, watch out. Why is that? Well, because when we commit every other kind of sin, we know it. When we commit adultery, I mean, we, we don't wake up in bed with someone and say, oh, you're not my wife. We know when we're committing adultery. We don't know when we're greedy. Jesus has to say, watch out. When we think of a greedy person, we think of our uncle who has the in-ground swimming pool. It would never be us. 30 years I've been doing confessionals in IHOP pancake booths. 
People have come and laid their lives completely bare to me, confessing the most intimate details of life. Not once has anyone ever come to me and said, Larry, i got to get this off my chest. I think I might be greedy. Not once. Watch. We... (laughs) We did not publish the order of the seven deadly sins as we were going to preach them because we knew that whatever the Greed Sunday was, most of you would skip if you could. (laughs) Because we're not greedy. And I don't like people picking on me about my money. Nearsighted. Farsighted. That's the deadliness of greed. It's a vision problem. So what's the antidote? Jesus gives us two. The first one is in verse 15 again. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Guard. Guard is the first word. I want you to take that word. Guard. Guard. Jesus, that's an active word. Constant vigilance. You need to guard against greed in your life. Don't assume it's someone else. It's you. No matter where you live, around the world, no matter where you live, greed is a sneaky sin. And we're farsighted with it. And we constantly need to be vigilant. And how do we do it? Let me give you just one practical idea. In America, I mean, money is such an important tool to following Jesus, but we never talk about it with other people. Do we? I mean, are you in a relationship with anyone, small group or a mentoring or discipling relationship where you've actually said, this is how much I make, this is how much I give? What do you think? Hmm. That would be a great guard against greed. If you had the courage to actually open up your books in a small group and let's make this commitment, not for guilt, not for condemnation, but as Paul said, to help one another excel at the grace of giving. What if we went into our small groups at the beginning of the year and said, this is what I make, this is what I give. What do you think? And and ask these questions. How much does a family really need to to live on in Littleton? Need. How much do we need in Littleton? And then second, what does radical generosity look like in Littleton? What does it look like? And let's talk about this, and let's help each other excel in the grace of giving. And by giving, I, you know, I'm talking about giving to the poor, giving to the common good, giving to church, giving to mission. Whatever it is, you're not spending your stuff on yourself. You're being radically generous with it. So guard yourself. Can you build something into your life? Let me just put it there. Who are you accountable to with your money? Who are you accountable to? If you want to build a guard and play defense, invite a trusted friend into it. And second is in verse 21. That's the first antidote, guard. The second one is give. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Rich toward God. I like the way Jesus phrases there, rich toward. It's a movement of your resources, you know, more and more away from self-consumption and comfort and more and more towards God's purposes in the world. It's a direction. Let me say it this way. I don't think God really cares how much you make. I don't think he cares whether you have a six-digit income, seven-digit income. I think, you know, he's probably involved in giving that to you. I don't think he cares how many digits. I do think he cares 
when, like Rich Farmer, these possessive pronouns start entering your mind and you think, oh, I have a six-digit income, that means I have to have a six-digit lifestyle. That's where God gets engaged. When you should be giving one of those digits to his purposes. <laughs> I still laugh about this. Uh, we're still recovering from the Amos series that we preached three years ago. <laughs> Some of you that were here. And one of the funny things that happened was that the week we, we were supposed to preach Amos 3, I actually had someone in the congregation shoot me an email and ask, is it okay for a Christian to buy a second home? Now, it just so happened I had studied Amos 3, so this is what I wrote back to him. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. <laughs> oh, that was one of the best moments in ministry I've ever had. <laughs> Woo! What would you say if you were the pastor? What would you say to someone who asked you if it's okay to have a second home or a third car or a fourth flat screen in a world where 21,000 people a day starve to death? What would you say? What did I say? Maybe, maybe not. How's that? Maybe, maybe not. You see, the issue is not with how much you earn. The issue is not with how much you have. The issue is are you being rich toward God and more and more of your finances moving toward God. So if you are a Christian and you want to have a second home, a condo, whatever it is, and that purchase of the second home stalls your giving or lowers your giving, I think God has an issue with that. That's a maybe not. But if your giving toward God keeps increasing with your income, increasing, increasing, and you want to get a second home, and guess what? Most people I know, and at least in this church, with second homes, they're using that home for God's kingdom even. Even the possessions are being used toward God's kingdom. Then I would say, yeah, maybe. You notice, I'm really leery of the yes and no. Because the yes and no make it law, and we don't live under law. We live under tension. We are always going to be wrestling with how much we have and how much we give. And that's by design. That's part of being a follower of Jesus, and that's part of the maturing process. In fact, I would say the more mature you are in Jesus, the more tension you'll have with your money. And that's right where Jesus wants you. C.S. Lewis captured this in a quote. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we would like to do and cannot do because our charity's expenditure excludes them. That's the wisdom of the cross. You see, for a Christian, this ultimately gets to what the Bible calls a tithe, a 10%. 
Now, again, I don't think we're under law. We're not under a strict 10%, but I do hold the tithe as a great test for the believer to see where your heart is with generosity and giving. Let me, let me talk about that for just a moment. You see, if you really, as a believer, understand what Jesus has done on the cross for us, and how the Father has blessed us so lavishly. When you understand that Jesus, to give us forgiveness of sins and eternal life and resurrection joy, He did not tithe. He gave it all. He did not tithe His blood. He freely, I, the, the, Paul said, He who was rich became poor for our sakes so that we who were poor could become rich. The more deeply that sits in us, the more we're likely to think tithe, 10%, that's nothing compared to what God's done for us. So if I'm not there, I'm going to get there. And if I am there, I'm going to keep going. You see, it's not about the tithe. The tithe is the starting point. The cross is the standard. And we're always trying to reflect more and more deeply to Jesus, to ourselves, and to our neighbors what it means to live in the shadow of the cross. And part of what that means is that every time we open our checkbook, we hear Jesus saying, watch out. You might be greedy. James K. Smith, he's a uh, professor at Calvin College up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He talks about, in his magazine comment, Grand Rapids as if it's the holy land of the United States. I beg to differ. But I will say this, some of what they have going on in churches in Grand Rapids is pretty amazing. One of which James K. Smith talks about is in, uh, they have a church and in their small groups, that's one of the things they do as part of their covenant. Every year when they begin as a small group, one of the agreements they make is to be very open about their finances. How much they make, how much they give, how can we help each other become more radically generous? Wow. May that be Waterstone. Not to condemn or judge, but to help each other excel at the grace of giving. Well, James K. Smith goes on. He says, we didn't start out that way. We had to learn. He says, we had to learn tithing. In fact, we have a cherished memory of where that education began at a Pentecostal revival service north of Philadelphia while we were in the voluntary poverty called grad school with three kids and a fourth on the way. At the altar call one evening, the pastor prophetically admonished us. There are people in the congregation whom the Spirit wants to invite into the joy of giving. In fact, he said, if you are invited, you are invited to the altar with your wallets. <laughs> now, parentheses, James K. Smith. If you are a cynic, or in my case, a Presbyterian, your spider senses are tingling right now. This is how the fleecing starts, end of parentheses. But there was no ask for an offering, no invitation to give. Instead, we brought our wallets to the altar, and the people of God laid hands on us and on our wallets and asked for the Spirit to initiate us into the joyful service that is giving. It was a turning point for us. Now you're wondering where I'm going to go with this, aren't you? I'm not going to call you forward to have people lay hands on you. But I do have two opportunities for you. And by the way, the last, some of the last words in the Old Testament about tithing is God saying, 
test me in this. Test me. Test me. Do you really want God involved in your life? Do you really want Him involved in your finances? Make some agreements with Him to try and grow in giving and see what happens. We'll just leave it there at the end of Malachi. Two opportunities. Billy's going to come and we're going to sing a song about worship. Remember, worship means to kiss. Not a romantic kiss. Worship, biblically, is to bow before the king, kiss his ring, and bare your neck. Worship means you're putting everything on the line for your king. Total allegiance. Worship means even your finances are acknowledged as belonging to the king. So, when we sing this worship song, if you want to get more radical with your giving, here's an opportunity to seal that with God. While we sing, leave your seat, take your wallet in hand, symbolically, or your phone with your bank accounts, whatever, and walk under that cross, say whatever you want to say to God, and go back to your seat. If you want to express a radical heart for generosity, second option, pray with me. And I'm not going to manipulate anyone. Here's what I want to pray. Jesus, every time I open my wallet, I want to hear you say in my mind, watch out. Be on guard. If you're willing to pray that with me, let's pray. Father, we acknowledge you as the giver of all good gifts. Jesus, the one who saves us, who did not tithe his blood, but gave his all. Spirit, as the one who maybe moves in our lives to transform us more into the generosity of Christ. So we invite you into this moment, this uh, moment of commitment. Jesus, we want to be more deliberate, more intentional, more open with our finances because it's part of what it means to follow you. And so we do pray that every time we open our wallet or our bank accounts, we would hear you whisper, Jesus, into our mind, watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. And we do this, Jesus, because we love you. We want to honor you with our money. We want to change the world with your possessions given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.